Hey, I'm lead pastor Noel Petras, and welcome to the Exeter Valley Church podcast. Our church plant started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. If you're curious about Jesus, looking for a home in the family of God, or feel called to be a part of a kingdom expansion in Exeter, California, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 9.30 a.m. in the Veterans Memorial Building at 324 North Cahuilla Avenue. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com or find us on social media. Thanks for listening. Hey, what do you what do you think about when you think about the Lord's Supper? Or maybe you've heard it, you know, called the communion. Uh, maybe even if you have like a, a an Orthodox or a Catholic or a Anglican background, maybe you refer to it as the Eucharist. And no matter what you call it, no matter what you think about it, the uh, this is the subject of today's teaching. And uh, we, uh, we are back in the book of Matthew, which I am excited for. And I did get a little bit nostalgic as I was thinking about two and a half years as a church. Uh, and we have only seven weeks left with the gospel of Matthew. Of course, I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll come back to it. <laughs> Uh, again and again, maybe as cross-reference, but uh, or maybe uh, as another sermon series years from now. But uh, we find ourselves in Matthew 26 this morning, and uh, the these last three chapters of Matthew are really the culmination of Jesus' life. In fact, uh, I remember when we were gone this past summer, um, Michael preached on the triumphant tri- or the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Can you remember that far back? Well, <laughs> in real time, uh, that moment marked about seven days between, uh, you know, uh, that moment of the entry into Jerusalem on the donkey and the end of Jesus' life. So we've been kind of stuck in these final days uh, for quite some time. And so um, I'm actually pretty excited uh, to get to the main point, which is the atoning work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection and the resurrection life that he offers us. But we find ourselves in this season where we're preparing as we journey with Jesus towards Easter. You know, traditionally, uh, there's this season of life. Some of you may be familiar with this season that some churches practice. It's called Lent. Raise your hand if you're familiar with the Lent season. So there's nothing about Lent in the Bible, but throughout church history, this practice has been practiced as a way of commemorating, preparing, and remembering the death and resurrection of Jesus. Lent is the Christian season of spiritual preparation before Easter. And in many Western churches, it begins on Ash Wednesday, which is actually this Wednesday, February 14th. So if you want to be really cool, you could get the ash and wear that on your Valentine's date. That would be That would be kind of fun. But during Lent, many Christians observe a period of fasting, repentance, moderation, self-denial, and spiritual discipline. And and the purpose of the Lenten season is to set aside time for reflection on Jesus Christ. Isn't that a good thing to do? To set aside time uh, and to reflect on the life of Jesus Christ, uh, to consider his suffering and his sacrifice his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So at Easter, we remember Christ's death and resurrection. It's a day of celebration. And at Lent, we remember his journey 
to the cross and the part that we play in his journey to the cross. It's a season of reflection. It's a season of soul searching. It's a season of examination. And so if you get where we're going uh, this morning, as we head to uh, the Lord's Supper, these are all great themes for us to be pursuing in the final days of Jesus' life. So I'm going to skip a little bit because I want to, it would be kind of weird if we preached about communion and didn't really save time for communion at the end today. So I'm going to, I'm going to shorten a little bit. So I'm going to jump right in, kind of skip through some of the context that I had prepared to share about. But the bottom line is that Jesus has finished his public ministry. He's left Jerusalem. He caused quite the scene upon leaving uh, Jerusalem. Remember what he did in the temple courts? That was pretty crazy. He's now kind of a wanted man. So he's retreated to Bethany. This is where Mary anointed him uh, with her expensive alabaster perfume. You remember that story, Lori Riley taught at the end of November. And uh, we, we learned in that story that uh, her actions weren't waste. They were actually worship. And Jesus said that wherever the gospel is preached forever, the story of this woman will be uh, remembered. So Jesus is now going to come back into the city as a wanted man. And so he's got to be pretty careful about the way that he comes back into the city. Why is he coming back into the city? Well, he's coming back into the city to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. See, Jesus was a devout Jew, a committed. He was a Jew of Jews. You know, we, we think about the Old Testament law and Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. Jesus was the best Jewish disciple that ever lived. And Jesus is making a way here to come back and celebrate this most important festival. But Jesus has to be a little bit careful. So if we go to verse 17, Cooper, you can show the first slide. The first thing we see here is, is the Passover story. And this is going to be an important connection. The Passover meal is, is connected to the Last Supper and helps us understand what's meant by the Last Supper. It says in verse 17 that on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? And he replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him. The teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. I thought this story, it's kind of cool the way that Jesus works this out. It's like he either like knew in some predictive way that there would be a man ready to receive his disciples, or what I think is probably more likely, he had prepared ahead of time and made arrangements. And Michael will probably remember, if you were really paying attention, you'll remember, this is very similar to how he prepared when he entered Jerusalem on a donkey. Go and find a man. He'll have a donkey. You'll tell them what you're up to, and he'll give you the donkey. There's a connection between his entrance for the first time and then his entrance for the last time. So as we said, Jesus is a consummate Jew, and he's, he's making quite a priority to practice the Passover meal. See, the Passover meal served as a foundational meal of the Old Covenant, taking place on the brink of the foundational saving act of the covenant the exodus from Egypt. Remember, the Passover commemorates when God saved his people out of Pharaoh's hands. And he told them, hey, this angel of death is going to come. But those of you who are my children, you cover your, uh, your doorways. 
with the blood of a lamb, a spotless lamb, right? And the angel will pass over you and not take your firstborn child, uh, child from you, right? And so then the next morning they wake up, they've been spared and they flee and Pharaoh lets them go at least long enough for them to get away. So this, this feast is celebrating, remembering what God had done. And they would commemorate this time with a meal, a very specific meal. Now, uh, this takes us to the supper, which is now the foundational meal of the new covenant that God is making with his people. It's taking place on the brink of the saving work that Jesus will achieve on the cross. Now, uh, Jesus was actually early to the Passover. He should have waited about 24 hours to eat Passover with his disciples, but Jesus knew he wasn't going to make it to the next night. And so this is actually just a number of hours, probably about eight hours or so. It's the night before the morning when he would be crucified. So this is very, very close to the end of his life. They're on the brink of the most historic moment in the history of the world. And this meal, you know, I wonder like, what was Jesus thinking about? What was he trying to communicate via this meal? I don't know, some of you are teachers. Do they still, you elementary teachers, uh, do they still use the word realia or manipulatives? Do you ever use, when I'm, my mom was use manipulatives, right? And they're like, it's a way of, of teaching kids t- things with their hands. So you stack the little blocks and you do your multiplication and your addition and subtraction, right? You know what I'm saying? This last supper is Jesus' way of teaching his disciples the why for what's gonna happen next. It's hands-on learning for his disciples. And Jesus was brilliant in this way. He could have taught, he could have like, you know, explained everything. But instead he gives them this hands-on example and he connects it to something that they were very familiar with. And one of the key phrases in the Lord's Supper is, every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Remember, we practice a remembering faith, do we not? And he wanted them to connect what was about to happen to what had already happened. And I think part of what he was saying is remember God's faithfulness at the Passover event. Remember how God showed up for you before. Even when it didn't seem all that great, even when you were in bondage, held year after year after year, harder work and harder work and harder work, God made a way from you. So he's in his last hours and he's preparing the meal early in order to show them why he was going to die. He's hoping that they would understand later the point of the story. Then in verse 20, we get to some predictions. Let me read verse 20. It says, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. Now you guys, uh, Da Vinci painted a very famous painting. Are you familiar with the Last Supper? Except that you know that this is not like historically accurate picture at all. Because it has them sitting at a table like we would do. But there were no tables, there were no chairs in ancient Jerusalem. It says here that they were reclining at the table. Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. It says in verse 22 that they were very sad and they began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Now, as you're reading this part of the story, I want you to think a little bit about what Jesus will say later and what the Apostle Paul will say later about the way that we need to examine our hearts 
before we take the Lord's Supper. See, what's happening here is Jesus is saying, one of you will, be, will betray me. One of you will betray me. Now, we know because the story's been written, Judas is already in the act. He's already accepted the bribe. 30 pieces of silver, a few thousand dollars is what Judas betrayed Jesus for. But these guys are all saying, well, it couldn't be me. And don't we do this when we deny our own imperfections? The disciples are all gathered around. Well, surely it wouldn't be me who would betray you. Now, we know that Judas betrayed Jesus, but there was another disciple, a pretty famous disciple that also betrayed Jesus. Didn't Peter betray Jesus with his words, denying him just a few hours later? You get what I'm saying. They're all trying to deny the plausibility that they could be involved with his betrayal. Anyway, Jesus uh, replied, the one who's dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. The first thing that occurs to me is that they all dipped their hand into the bowl. They were all participating in this meal. And it's not explicit in the rest of these lines because it does seem to focus on Judas. But I wonder if, if, if not part of what Jesus was saying is that you're all culpable in my death. And wouldn't that be true for us today? We all share culpability in the death of Jesus. He goes on to say, the son of man will go just as, as it is written about him. So this is interesting. Jesus is making a very clear statement. The son of man, which was his favorite name for himself will go just as it is written about him. Jesus is saying, my death will happen just like it was foretold. God has had a plan. I think he's trying to reassure his disciples right before the moment of greatest crisis. God's got the whole world in his hands. It's his plan that's been written about. You should know that this time is about to come. But then he goes on to say, woe to that man who betrays the son of man. And it would be better for him if he had not been born. See, we see in this story, this divine tension between the sovereignty of God, who's in control, who's been working from the beginning of time to work his will. And yet the responsibility that we all have to still live a life of obedience, both things matter, God's sovereignty and our responsibility. Woe to that man who betrays the son of man. We should all feel the weight of those words. Woe to me who's betrayed the son of man. Verse 25, it says, Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, Still very cryptic, you have said so. And that's all that he says. Now, once again, Jesus, he's veiled in his predictions and in his announcements. It's his way, and I, and I believe the way of God, to only completely unveil his plan at the proper time. This should be encouraging for those of us, any of us, maybe many of us who, are, who find ourselves in a time and place, a season in our lives, where you're just waiting on God. Like when, God? God's plan is never late. And this is the good news. God's plan is always on time. Even when we don't understand, even when we can't completely see. So in any event, the stage is, is set with the Passover meal. And Jesus has begun to prepare his disciples for the meal to come by, by, I believe, illuminating their fitness for the meal. You've all dipped your hands in the bowl, Jesus has said. This meal to come, 
It's for all of you, I believe Jesus is saying. It's a picture of the way that we're going to examine our hearts before we come to receive this meal today. See, revealing sin is what Jesus does. Not, 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 not just to judge us, but out of love. And we know the Bible says that it's his kindness that brings us to repentance. And we could probably all agree if we really search deep within our heart, we're, none of us is perfect. This is what Alora said this morning, right? We're all imperfect people gathered together by the perfect God. And it's because of this meal that imperfect people have relationship with the perfect God. And this is the truth of scripture. Revealing sin is what Jesus does. He's so kind. He can't leave us in our folly. He can't leave us to walk down a path of destruction. And so he reveals our sin. And this is what's happening in the meal. So now Jesus will institute his famous uh, last supper. And (laughs) this is the meal to end all meals. Except it's also, it's not just a reminder of the meal that happened. It's a reminder of the meal to come. Revelation 19 talks about a final banquet when a redeemed people have a great feast on a redeemed earth with God. Verse 26, here's the institution of the Lord's Supper. It says in verse 26 that while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. It says, when he had given thanks, did you know this is where we get the word Eucharist? It literally means thanksgiving. If you've grown up in a tradition that uses the word Eucharist to describe the Lord's Supper, it's expressing the thankfulness, the thanks that we have to give, the thanks that Jesus gave for the plan that God had made. Verse 27 says that then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, again, giving thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. There's a command in his voice. Drink from it, all of you, all disciples, drink from this cup. And what is this? This is my blood of the covenant, old covenant, Passover. You needed a sacrifice, new covenant, grace, Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice. If you read the English standard version, it says the propitiation of our sin. Jesus took the place of the sacrificial lamb. He says this this blood, it's poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, Jesus says, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now we're to the Lord's Supper. What is the Lord's Supper? How do we practice the Lord's Supper? I wondered if you would, if you'd be willing just to raise your hand. Anyone, anyone spent some time practicing the Lord's Supper in a Catholic setting? Do you mind raising your hands? There's, yeah, okay. Anybody in a Lutheran setting? Anyone, we have any Lutherans in the house? Oh, sweet. I thought we were gonna have to go grab some people next door. All right, we got one. Any, uh, anyone grew up in a Reformed uh, church background? Maybe a, like a Presbyterian church, Reformed church, a more Calvinist uh, background? Yeah, okay, that's cool. You guys are free to raise your hands as well. Anyone, anyone grow up Baptist or non-denominational? Okay, cool. You, we got a great uh, uh, smattering here of uh, different perspectives on what's meant 
by uh, the Lord's Supper. And so I wanted to take a little bit of time to talk about some different views on the Lord's Supper and then talk about, I'll finish by talking about how we're going to practice the Lord's Supper here. And, uh, you know, my goal today, honestly, you guys, is I was so convicted this week. I was so convicted for, I know that we do this every week, but I was just convicted in my heart for how I've not taken it seriously enough. And so my goal uh, this morning is that we would elevate our view of Jesus's last supper. Why? Because he elevated, he had a really elevated view of this meal, didn't he? So here we go. We're going to study. So there's actually, um, I'm going to, 1 Corinthians 11 is really helpful. So if you want to, um, if you have your Bible in front of you, that's a good place to turn. I'm going to be referencing that um, passage quite a bit. <clears throat> let me, uh, let me read it to start here. For I received, this is verse 23, 11, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 29. And notice this is right before we've been, uh, we've been learning about uh, the spiritual gifts and how they're to be op uh, operated in the church. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. But Paul had been talking about some other ways that the church needed to operate. And once again, he's correcting these 1 Corinthians. Well, they weren't called 1 Corinthians. They were just called Corinthians. But he's correcting these folks, right? Because they've gotten a little bit out of hand. And so anyways, here we go. Uh, verse 23, uh, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, Paul's saying. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So you may have noticed Jesus's words in the story in Matthew. What does he say? He says, this is my body. This is my blood. Now, if you've, if you've been in church for a while, those words just go like right over your head and no big deal. But if you haven't, like, can we admit, like you're eating the body of Jesus, drinking blood. This is like some sort of temple, temple of doom type, like cult activity. It would, it would appear, right? It seems really uh, strange. So I think we, it'd be fair to ask the question, like, what's happening? What does Jesus mean by eat my body, drink my blood? There's actually uh, four prominent views um, of what's actually happening with these elements. And these views are all held by Christians. So, you know, sometimes I like to say that there's certain theological issues that we should hold in pencil, right? And those we could, you know, you could probably stay in this church, no problem. You'd be perfectly happy here if we disagreed with like the, the type of songs that we sang or, you know, the, our, our particular liturgy. Um, those things would be written in pencil, right? Some things are more serious here. And um, you, could, you could still be a Christian if we had differing views on these things, but those things would be written more in pen, right? A little bit harder to unwrite these things. These things maybe would include like, gender roles in the church and, and possibly like the, the role of the gifts of the spirit in the church. You could still be a Christian and hold different views, but you may at some point, maybe, maybe not feel comfortable in a church that disagreed with, with how you interpret those things. Does that make sense? Nobody got kicked out. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, you get what I'm saying. Some of these views are a little bit more essential. And then finally, there's some views that are like written in blood, right? And these views, like uh, the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, uh, the, the doctrine of the Trinity, these are like fundamental 
If you fail to, to believe these things, you really have stepped out of Christian faith altogether. Okay. And so anyways, uh, what we're talking about today is probably in that like pencil to, to pen ish. It's on the continuum between pencil and pen. Anyways, maybe like colored pencil. Those are a little bit harder to erase. You get what I'm saying? So there's, there's four views here. Um, the, the, um, the first view is uh, called transubstantiation. This is actually the Catholic view. So those of you who have a Catholic experience, the Catholics believe that these elements, the, the bread and the wine, become the literal body and blood of Jesus. The second view is called the, the consubstantiation view. These are really fancy words. I'm not trying to sound smart. I'm just trying to relay what other smart people have said. The, the, concept, the consubstantiation view is the Lutheran view. So Martin Luther, the guy who started the, uh, the Protestant Reformation, a lot of it was over the Eucharist and how the Eucharist was taken. So the Lutheran view is that the presence of Christ is not literally, it's not literally his body and blood, but the presence of Christ is in, with, and under the elements as you receive them. So sort of like water in a sponge, like when you, you could pour water from a sponge into your mouth, the water is not literally in the sponge, but it's in, under, and around. Does that make sense, kind of? They're really parsing these things out in fine detail, aren't they? Okay, so that would be the second view. If, you're, if you have a Lutheran background, that may make some sense to you. Um, the third view is the, the, Cal, the view of John Calvin. Um, many Reformed Presbyterian churches would hold the view, and that's called the spiritual presence, which basically is the view that uh, by the Holy Spirit, the presence of Jesus surrounds somehow these elements. So by the Holy Spirit, the presence of Jesus is with us at the table. So that's a more, little bit less literal, a little bit more figurative. And then the last view is called the memorial view. This is actually the view, the view I realized that I had grown up with. And that's kind of what I'm saying. You know, communion is something that we do regularly if you come to church. But I think I just realized, like, I haven't thought deeply about it in a while. And uh, I was invited this week to think more deeply about it. And that's my invitation to you. Let's think more deeply about this really important thing that we do. So anyways, the memorial uh, view is ba basically, it's the view that these elements are just symbols. This is a symbolic act. Like Jesus didn't literally mean that his body and his blood, you know, were in these elements. They're just symbols, right? And uh, a guy with the last name of Zwingli was one of the uh, originators of this viewpoint. Um, if you found yourself in a Baptist church at any point, you probably, even though some Baptist churches are more reformed, a lot of Baptist churches, Anabaptist uh, folks would believe this, or, and also many non-denominational churches. I think that the memorial view seems to be the most common view in uh, Western American churches. I don't know if you would agree with me on that. Anyways, these are pen and pencil issues, right? We're, nobody's blood is on the line here. We're, we're, we're trying to figure out which one um, is right. And we're also trying to um, figure out how to practice the Lord's Supper. But here's the thing. So even though there's some uh, diversity of thought in these issues, one thing that we can all agree on as Christians is that the bread and the cup speak eloquently as symbols of one Christ's redemptive work at Calvary. This is a picture of what Jesus did at Calvary. Number two, they speak of the fellowship of the people of God in Christ. Because of what Christ's done, we have unity together. And then third, they, they point us to the coming day when a re redeemed people will gather in the presence of the Savior at his final banquet in a redeemed 
world. So you're probably wondering, well, okay, Noel, you've told us what the Catholics think. You've told us what the Lutherans think, et cetera, et cetera. Well, what do we think? Or what do you think? I got a lot of pages to tell you what I think. I'm just joking. I, I grew up a memorialist, you know? I, I grew up in an Anabaptist tradition, and I hadn't thought much about it other than that these were a symbol, you know? When I read things in Scripture, when Jesus says, like, uh, this is my body, this is my blood, I just immediately think, well, that can't be literal, right? There's other places in Scripture where he says things like, in John 6, I'm the bread of life. Well, do I really think that Jesus is bread? No, that seems to be, uh, you know, Figurative language, right? He also says in John 10, I am the door. Do I think Jesus is literally a door? Is that what he means when he says that? No, I don't really think that. He also says in John 15, I am the vine. Do I literally think that he's the vine? So you get where I'm coming from. My, my prior experience before I really started digging into this concept would have been certainly a pretty confident memorialist. And then I started to read a lot about what the early church thought about communion. And so here's where I'm at today. See, because uh, a lot of the very first Christians took for granted that he was literally talking about his body and his blood. And so those of us who have a more, more of a memorial perspective have to really consider why did the early church seem to have this view of tr transubstantiation? Like, just for example, if you've heard of St. Ignatius, he was, I don't think that's, I think maybe that's the character Nacho Libre was built upon. Anyways, that's all I know other than that. I've heard that name. It's a famous name. There's like a Catholic school somewhere named after this guy. Anyways, that was the year, his life was like 80 to 100 AD. So he died just like 50 years after the death of Christ, right? And he was like, like probably knew some people that knew Paul. This is pretty early. He, he believed in transubstantiation. Justin Martyr, uh, 150 AD. Um, Augustine, you've heard of him probably years later, but that was 380 AD. So this is going way back, right, to what the early church uh, practiced and what they believed. And I think that, you know, sometimes when we get to these tough spots in Scripture, it's really helpful to go back and think, well, what did the earliest Christians believe and how did they behave, you know? Like if you were really with Jesus, you're an eyewitness. Eyewitness testimony, eyewitness testimony holds more weight. You know what I'm saying? So, so here's my conclusion. My view has been typically like symbolic. This is a symbolic meal. That's been my you know, predominant position. But I am starting to wonder, and in humility, I wanna submit myself to the possibility that I haven't, I'm not smarter than people who were literally with Jesus and his disciples. And I'm wondering, like, what could be for us if we took this meal as seriously as to think that the presence of God, the presence of God's son, Jesus, is in the elements. And so I want to kind of engage in a process of, of just like, you know, kind of like exploring why did these early church uh, Christians believe in this, this concept of transubstantiation? Now, here's the thing. Again, um, while I'm not sure about some of these issues, and thank you for taking that little journey with me, I want to go right back to what I am very sure of this morning. Will you go with me to what I'm very sure of? This is the time you could nod your heads and all of this. Number one, Christ's presence is with his people individually. The Spirit of God lives inside of you, true or untrue? True. You're his temple if you believe in Jesus a savior and Lord. Number two, I am sure that Christ's presence 
is with his people collectively. As we gather, he dwells here with us by his spirit. Is that true or untrue? I'm sure of it. It's a fundamental. He's here with us now. We can bank our life, our, our practice as a church on the fact that God's spirit inhabits his people. He's enthroned upon our praises. Number three, I am confident that Christ's presence is with us when we celebrate this meal. Can I get an amen? His presence is with us when we celebrate his meal, when we act obediently and we do what he told us to do. I am there with you, he said, wherever two or three, two or more are gathered. Number four, this meal was commanded by Christ as a way to commemorate and reenact the sacred invitation to share in the fellowship of his suffering. Jesus said, take and eat, all of you. Lastly, number five, for most of church history, you guys, this meal was the centerpiece, the central act of corporate worship. I'm sure of it. So now that I've dispelled the unclear, hopefully with clear, we can get to some things that we can all agree upon for our practice of this uh, supper. Now, I probably won't say a lot that's new to those of you that follow Jesus for any length of time. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe for some of you, I guess we're all on di at different points in, in our journey. But, but I think this could be just like a helpful way for us to kind of be on the same page. Does that make sense? And, you know, because, you know, we actually have vacillated um, between the idea of, I grew up in a church that took communion once a month. Anyone grew up in a church like that? Once a month, right? Um, that, was, that was our view on communion. The good thing about once a month is you can kind of make a bigger deal about it. You, you set aside a little bit more time and you read the passages, etc. And sometimes when you do it every week, it, like anything that you do regularly, it starts to just become, well, we just do it. And we don't really know why. And I, I, as your pastor, I repent for not telling you why more often. And we're actually going to, I think we're going to step forward in a new way with receiving of the Lord's Supper. Remember what I told you, my goal this morning is that our view of this meal would be elevated. We got to get to the point that Jesus was at. Remember, the night before he died, this is what he chose to teach his disciples. I mean, I, I couldn't tell you if the body of Jesus is actually in this meal or not. It's, it's a mystery to me that Christians have believed that. But I know this meal is important. This was Jesus' last meal. So here's how we're going to do it here at Exeter Valley Church. Perk up those ears, folks. This is how we're going to do it around here. I got some R's for you to remember. Coop, do we have a slide? Oh, there it is. Beautiful. Here's how we're going to practice the Lord's Supper here at Exeter Valley Church. Number one, we're going to recognize Christ as Lord before we participate in the supper. Hey, if you're not sure what to do with Jesus, I am so glad you're here. You are welcome here. In fact, we did this whole thing for you. But this meal is for people who, have, who know in their hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six 26 says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Why would you want to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes if you didn't believe that Jesus was Lord? So part of the way we do uh, communion here as we, we walk up individually allows you the opportunity to stay in your seat. No problem. We'll do it again next week. If you change your mind, come on up. You got to recognize Christ as Lord. He's, he's the lamb of God. You guys connect it to the Passover. 
He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The second thing that we got to do is we've got to review. We've got to examine ourselves. 1 Corinthians 11, 28 says, everyone ought to examine themselves before taking the Lord's Supper. Now, um, some churches have a practice that's called fencing the table, basically meaning policing who can take the supper. I believe clearly here, the command is to examine your own self. Because how can I know your heart? I can know your, the behaviors that you commit in front of me, but how can I know your heart? Only you and the Lord know your heart. And so the Bible says, examine yourself. So before you come to the table, you want to go through a process of examining your heart. This is like what David said, search me, O God, and know my heart. And we have to be honest about the fact that there's things inside our hearts that ain't great. And sometimes we can keep it together even on the outside and fool other people or fool ourselves. But deep down, there's just things that we can't get rid of if we're honest with ourselves. Just ways of being, ways of falling off course. So examine, if you're doing small groups this week, we actually, that's one of the activities in the um, Practicing the Way series this week. It's an activity, an ancient activity called examine, where it's a type of prayer in which you just examine your heart. You listen to the Lord, Lord, what do you say? about my heart. We should do this before we come and receive the Lord's Supper. Every week, you should do that. And if you feel like there's something in your heart that's just not quite right, we'll do it again next week. Go take care of that thing. Do business with God. It'd be better to sit out a meal than to take this meal unworthily. We're going to get to that. We want to review ourselves. The third thing we're going to do is we're going to repent, right? When you find out what's wrong with you, what do you do? You say, I'm sorry. You don't just say, I'm sorry. You you change your way of being. Remember John the Baptist's words, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. There's new life ahead ahead of us for those of us who will walk in repentance. You don't get new life without repentance. This meal is about new life. It's about resurrection life. It's about being resurrected. You get resurrected when you repent from your old way of being and step into a new way of being. The resurrection is not just a someday thing. It's a right now opportunity for those of us who are willing to search our hearts and repent and walk differently. Number four, we're going to remember. Remember, we're, we're a... Remember, we're a remembering faith. Remember, we're a remembering faith. 1 Corinthians 11, 24. Why do we do this? We do this in remembrance of me. Who's the me? Not me, but Christ. We remember what Christ has done. The next thing we do, number five, we're going to relate. Here's what I mean. Relationship. We do this together. We don't do this on our own. We do it together. This meal builds unity. In fact, that's one of the things Paul was correcting in the Corinthian church because the way they were doing it, just like the way they were doing spiritual gifts, didn't promote unity, it promoted disunity. And he's like, no, 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 no. You all got to eat together. Everyone gets a piece of the meal. There's no preference. He says in chapter 10, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. And what is this one loaf? Symbolize. We all share the body of Christ. And yes, I just touched the loaf. Post-COVID, things are a little bit different with the, the Lord's Supper, that's for sure. But we ain't a, we're not a wafer church, okay? We're putting that flag in the ground right now. 
All right. We're not doing styrofoam. It's, we're not doing it. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, come on. Jesus was swole. We, our loaves represent how swole Jesus was. All right. I should have said that further from the pulpit, huh? Here we go. First Corinthians 11.33 says, So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. We do this together. This meal builds unity. And lastly, how are we going to do it? We're going we're gonna to do it by awaiting his return. Look, this meal not only connects to the old meal, the Passover meal, it also points to a one-day meal where there's going to be an incredible spread before us. And guess who's going to be at the table? Jesus. And at that point, we won't have any debate about the presence of Jesus in the supper because he'll be with us in eternity, enjoying, it says in Revelation 19, the finest wine. Another amen would be appropriate. Enough from you right here, sweetheart. Oh, I just, hey, look, you know, uh, I've mentioned some things this morning that are a little bit debatable, even in Christian circles. But again, I want to just bring us right back to the essence of this meal. Because what we cannot debate is that the opportunity that we have every time we gather to enjoy this meal, just think about the opportunity that we have. Think about why this would be so central to the early church experience. When nobody read, there weren't like codex Bibles hanging around. Imagine. And so what did they do? They remembered realia, manipulatives, hands-on learning. This is a great picture. The whole gospel is right here. The broken body and the poured out blood of Jesus. We can be sure of it. And every time we come together, we have a new opportunity to review our hearts, to repent of anything that's wrong with us. And, and we get to repent to a God who's willing to forgive. This is the beauty of grace. Sometimes we think about getting caught in our sin. It's not like that. It's his kindness that brings us to repentance. Why would we want to keep living in destructive habits and ways of being? It's God's kindness that brings us to repentance. Every Sunday, we have an opportunity to receive this supper and remember what he's done for us to remember the opportunity that we have to live new lives. Who wants to live an old life? My old life ain't working for me. I'm tired of the bad habits, the destructive ways of being. You get what I'm saying? This is an opportunity every doggone Sunday. I had to be really careful how I said that. We receive an opportunity afresh. Salvation comes only by his body and by his blood. Look, Jesus is the lamb of the world that takes away the sins of the world. He's the lamb of God. Hey, hey, it's Pastor Noel again. Just wanted to say thanks so much for joining us here at the Exeter Valley Church podcast. And don't be afraid to join us in person on a Sunday morning, 9.30 a.m. at the Exeter Memorial Building.